you're best known as a past contributor to Mashable. That's where you really built up your your reputation as such. I, I, you joined Mashable in in August 2008. How did you get to that point, and how did you get that position? I worked my ass off. Um, I originally got the position because I was a um, in 08, I became a part-time writer for Mashable. I was actually a product manager back then. and uh, I just wrote personally in my personal blog and hit dig a few times and they noticed and uh, I got recommended and like, sure, I'll write every once in a while, make a couple extra bucks on the side. But then it became much like, then they really liked my work and I decided to move to the Valley. Um, I was actually looking for product jobs there, but the day before I moved, Mashable gave me an offer for, as an editor. I'm like, all right, I'll see how this goes. And it went pretty well, 2,500 articles, uh, travel across the world, it's been great. 2,500 articles, that's a, that's, a, that's a huge volume of articles. What was working at Mashable like? Uh, what, I mean, first, firstly, let's look at the positive sides. What, what was the best part of working at Mashable? What did you get out of it? I mean, it's a couple things. One was I, I got to meet some of the most amazing people in the world. I got access to the Mark Zuckerbergs and the Niklas Zenstroms. Uh, of the planet and got to interview him, got to sit down with him, got to dine with him. It's an amazing experience and got to build out that network and got to build out a reputation as an expert in technology. Um, and so that was probably my favorite part of all of it, even more than like helping entrepreneurs or writing in that. It was really just meeting people. What, if any, were the downsides to working for Mashable? I mean, it's, it, it seems to the onlooker as like it's quite um, intense, it's quite, you're under quite a lot of pressure, and, and what are those sides to it like? It's the same with any technology news publication. You work a lot, um, and you are like working day and night uh, all the time. You just have to keep on grinding. You see a 2 a.m. a story, and like, I gotta write that. And, and it wears, it wears on you. Any tech journalist will tell you, it just wears on you. Um, and it wore on me to a point like, where I just need to do something else. Part of the thing too is uh, when you're a journalist, you're on the sidelines still. You aren't building things necessarily. You are reporting on what other people are building. Some, like, some people love that. That wasn't exactly for me. I'm more of a I gotta go build something type of person. Going back to the, um, you know, the, the constant grind, do you feel that, that perhaps that model um, is, is a popular, well-proven model, it's, it's profitable, but does uh, does that kind of diminish the quality of the content? And I mean, some people do criticize Mashable for page view chasing, those techniques of using galleries and things like that to increase the page view count. Do, is this leading to a kind of, is it, is it kind of, uh, you know, a circle? Is it, is it kind of uh, reducing the quality of content or not? How I see it is uh, there's more information than ever. People want to consume more information than ever but they have very limited time to do such. The n amount of time in the world is never going to increase, right? So they're trying to find more efficient ways to consume more content, which is why I think you've seen shorter content on the web, because it's quicker for people to absorb that information. If they want to dig deeper into a topic, they can read more articles, or they can find a long form, or they can do the research on Wikipedia or elsewhere. Uh, I, I don't think that it, there's any kind of, say, degrade across society or such that people really talk about. Um, I do think it does mean some forms of journalism, like investigative journalism, aren't as valued anymore. Uh, but it's being replaced by the ability to get information and create information from almost anywhere. So you get, you gain something and you lose something, and it's up to you to decide whether or not that's a good thing or a bad thing.
Sure, that's, I mean, that's a, that's a really good way of looking at it. What do you make then of the way that technology journalism is, is developing, how it's developing? Uh, how do you think it could be improved and what do you feel is wrong with tech journalism at the moment? And you touched on long-form journalism. Um, is there a lack of this and, and are we going to see uh, perhaps new models emerging, new sites that, that specialise in long-form journalism um, coming about? That's a tough question. So. The, the first part, like, I, let me start addressing, like, is there some, are the things wrong with tech journalism? Yeah, there's a lot of people who are trying to game for links. There's a lot of reblogging where somebody just re reports the exact same stuff as somebody else, which is, um, doesn't really add all that much value on top, but people read it because they do. Um, I'd like to obviously see more original content, more original reporting. I'd like to see more, I like seeing more opinion, I want to see what people think, um, and I'd like better tools that would help me discern through all that. What do you feel the key to success was for Mashable then? What, I mean, what, what, what made it so successful, what made it blow up in the way that it did? Because we, back in the early days, we, the senior team at Mashable, made a conscious decision to teach our users and explain how to share and why to share. Way back in the early days, when Twitter was very young, how to retweet, why to retweet, the value of it, sharing, all of that. And because of that, we, we taught them how to share. We gave them new tools how, uh, that helped them share. And then guess what they shared? Mashable articles. And it really grew from there. I think that's the biggest reason uh, for success almost over anything. Once you build that kind of community, like it's the community building. It's really, really, really tough to build that kind of community and it's really like once you've built that community it's really tough to lose it. And so how important with online journalism is the community? Is it, is it the most integral part of, of any online journalism venture? Oh yeah, absolutely. If you don't have a community, you don't have a site. You need to build a community that follows, that retweets, that shares, that talks about you, that um, goes to your site every day, that promotes you, that defends you. Without it, you are nothing. Your readers are your lifeblood. And so what were the biggest things that changed at Mashable over the time you were there? What, how did it evolve and, and how did you evolve, um, you know, and, and how did the competitors affect you and, and, and what happened over the time you, you were there? I mean, Mashable's become more mainstream and focused not just on social media and technology but has expanded to politics and uh, entertainment and, uh, lot, and mobile and lots of other areas that interested are the readers. It's a digital lifestyle publication. Um, Thinking about competition wasn't always was never a big part of the equation. It was just like, what do our readers want? What is the direction we want to go in? And let's go build for that. And let's hire people that can help with that. And what would you say to an aspiring technology blogger or an aspiring commentator who um, aspires and wants to be where, where you got to and and built up that um, you know that huge following? You need to be very, you need, you need to be out there, you need to be very vocal, you need to build your own reputation, you need to build out an audience, and you need to have an opinion. Um, I meet a lot of journalists who are very, like, just like to write, they don't like to go network, they don't like to uh, be the center of attention, which I understand that, but to be a great journalist that is valued by publications, that is an asset that they're willing to pay for, you have to have an audience, you have to have a following, you have to have those connections, you have to have that reputation. That's built by 
having a distinct voice, by having an opinion that you're not afraid to write about, by meeting lots of people, and by focusing on how do you build out your audience, your following, your subscribers. Not everyone likes thinking about it, but you have to do it in the modern era of journalism. How similar is that to someone who wants to start a startup? How, I mean, what, what, do you, what does it take to start a startup, in your opinion, um, f- um, given your experience and what you've seen and the, and the, and the startups that you've seen um, evolve? What does it take? What does it take to s- start a great startup? It takes, number one, fearlessness. Two, uh, a, insanity. And three, the talent to actually build things. Uh, I, I've met a few startups even recently. They're like, like, we've been a startup for five months. How many lines of code have you written? Zero. You're not a startup. You have to build. You have to test. You have to iterate. You're, you need to just build and be insane and be able to take it when people say no. You're going to hear no. You hear no more often as a founder than I think almost anywhere else. It, but if you keep pushing and you keep testing, and you throw, you look at the data, and you throw away bad ideas, and you embrace the good ones, and you focus. You can win, but it's a really, really difficult job, and it's for something that um, you don't just do haphazardly. You have to be really committed, and you have to really be prepared for how high the highs are and how low the lows are. So, on startups, as someone based in the U.S., um, what does the London and European technology scene um, and the U.K. startup scene? look like to you? What impression do you get when you come here and you see these events going on? And what does it look like from, um, you know, across the Atlantic? What, what, what does it look like when you read our tech blogs and our, our coverage? It's, it's growing, but it's still not there yet, right? Um, the, one of the issues, Silicon Valley is very focused on Silicon Valley. So the Silicon Valley-based publications like to talk a lot about the Silicon Valley-based companies, with a few exceptions, like... Um, like in Europe, SoundCloud or Spotify or such. Um, it's tougher to break out. Uh, but when I come here and I see the startups, I mean, I see entrepreneurs are just as driven. Um, they have a different way of going about things because they've been raised differently. Um, they may, maybe they are more risk adverse than some. Maybe they are, uh, they got money from different places. Maybe they don't have as much attention as they do in the U.S. But it's really just about do you see that drive and do you see that talent? Do you have that talent to build something amazing? Um, and it's here. It's everywhere in Europe. It's, uh, it's growing, but there's still a long way to go. So you, just, you touched on it just then. You touched on it in the panel. There, there are cultural differences. Um, perhaps people in the UK and, and Europe are more risk averse. Why do you think that is? Have you got any insight? Or do you just think it's, it's literally just a cultural difference in the way that the education system is? Or Well, it's history. You have hundreds and hundreds and thousands of years of history in Europe um, with older systems that really focused on uh, classes and structures and wasn't really about entrepreneurship. When in the U.S., it's a much newer country, it is, it is kind of like a startup of a country. It's more entrepreneurial because the people came there to make a new start because that, 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 that's what the focus is on. It's like, like let's build things, like build business, you know? Um, it, it's not always the same in Europe. That's why I think, for example, Israel has, a, has more startups than most other European countries, because it's a newer country. Yeah. And so it has that more mindset. So it, it, 
it eventually changes. I find most in their 20s or so in almost all European countries really want to go into technology because they see its potential and they want to be more part of it. It just take, it'll just take longer for it to really take root in Europe as I'm starting a company and people saying that's fantastic rather than them scratching their heads. And, and how, and how um, significant do you think the language barriers are? Do you think that plays a, a big role? Or, or I mean, people are talking about, you know, these German startups, these French startups should start thinking like about global markets, but how can they? I mean, is it, is it almost naive for, for us in the English-speaking countries to kind of suggest that they should be looking beyond their borders, and why should they look beyond their borders? Why, what's wrong with just starting a startup to, to appeal to your local market? So the, the issue is this. If you're a startup in the U.S. and you quote-unquote crack the U.S. market, you've cracked a 300-plus million person market. So that's a lot of users. If you crack the French market, you have nowhere near that amount. Or the British market. Or the German market. You, you have to, like, you'd have to go and learn, you'd have to get someone else who can help you crack that new market and then translate and then build the product uh, for those cultural differences. In the U.S., you can get to that big scale and then you'll have the money to be able to hire those people more. I think that's the biggest difference. It's just the sheer market, like, Trying to open up yourself up in another market is very tough. Um, and it's easier if your first market is a very, very large market. That's why I think China is set to be huge because when you crack the Chinese market, it's very, very, very big. And then you can you have a lot of resources to move on when you're eventually ready. And so going back to the, the final thing about the cultural differences is there are a lot of UK VCs funding US companies and they, they tend to be almost more averse to funding their own companies domestically. I mean, how much of that is a problem? And, and, and how much can governments do? I mean, how much of a role does the U.S. government play in the U.S. Uh, in, in, in America? And how much um, ro of a role should the U.K. government be playing in, in, in kind of um, assisting startups? There's been a lot of debate about that here today. I mean, the U.S. is unique in the respect that it tries to stay out of the way of startups. It doesn't like like with it, with exceptions like people like the SOPA Act, which got defeated by by the people because it was just it would be more regulation on top of startups that could really harm their innovation and growth. Uh, in general though, the US there's not a lot of that allow startups to really have that freedom to build things and raise money and uh, move fast and hire fast and fire fast. It takes longer to hire a fire in most European countries. It's it's a very key difference. I don't know um, if or why London VCs um, spend more money in the U.S. than the U.K. Um, I, I think just a lot of it is probably just because of the market size and the track record of U.S. companies as entrepreneur and entrepreneurship is still is very strong. The track record has to be built up in London, elsewhere. We have to when there is a Google that comes out of Europe, that'll be the turning point. But there hasn't been that 100, 200 billion dollar market cap uh, internet company from Europe in a very long time, if ever. Like. You can't, th there's, it'll come eventually, but it has to come first. That's where the money will come from for future startups. I don't know, hiring someone asked the question in, in your audience, um, do you have to move to the US to find the talent? Is that just a non-issue? I mean, I believe, um, and, and, and most people would probably believe that there are, is talent to be found here, but what happens is a lot of the computer science graduates, they tend to go and work for investment investment banks and um, in the financial industries. They don't go and work for startups. So. Um, do you think that it's kind of non-issue really the, the whole there's no talent in the UK uh, argument 
there's talent everywhere, but um, Silicon Valley has a unique mix of not just talent, but lots of entrepreneurs that support uh, fellow entrepreneurs, and VCs that support entrepreneurs, and local businesses that support entrepreneurs. It, that support structure is probably the biggest thing that you have in the Valley. It's not just the talent. You can find talent anywhere, and if you're really charismatic, you can convince that talent to join you. Uh, it's just it's just the support structure. Uh, the countries, the regions with more support for their entrepreneurs, um, specifically from other entrepreneurs and venture capitalists, uh, are the ones that are growing blossoming. There's a whole bunch of that. There's that community growing in L.A., in New York, in Dublin, in London, in uh, Israel, and more are coming. And so this morning, um, someone raised the issue um, that you need one or two million dollars in, in funding to think of a business model. Now, do you think that's the case? Depends on the business. You, you see huge businesses that just that started off without any business model Facebook, and then they figured out business model on the way. Um, it happens more often than you think, but there's a lot of there's more, I think, more companies than ever that think about what is the business model even before you get in. So it's to me, it's a big point. It just depends on what kind of company you're building. If, if it's one that builds out to scale, you, I think you can find ways to monetize users. It's been proven time and time again. Uh, but it's not a bad idea to think about your monetization strategy in the first place. You currently advise startups uh, and you're working on your own company. Just tell us a bit more about that. My, I'm the co-founder of a startup called The Peep Project, which is unfortunately stealth, so um, can't talk about it too much quite yet, but thepeepproject.com, there's my plug. Go and sign up and later this year you'll get an invite and see awesome things. And yeah, I do advise several startups, um, Valley startups as well as an entertainment company across the board. It's nice, to, for me, it's nice to be on the other side of the table where I'm building things. It's really, really, really difficult and not glamorous at all but it's the only way I'm wired and so sometimes you're just wired that way and you just have to do it that way and that's how I am and I know that's how a lot of fellow entrepreneurs are yeah. you just have to go and build because it's in your DNA and do you think going down the uh, blogging route first and then going into founding a startup does that does that give you a leg up at all and do you recommend others try that kind of that approach uh, I think you can build a reputation for it built, helped me build a reputation and build a network it depends what you need uh, you, you, if you build up a lot of technology skills at a Facebook or a Google, you'll also be able to get lots of funding. It just really depends. Um, you just have to excel at an, in an area and you have to build a reputation. And if you build a reputation, people come knocking.